And uh, just play. <laughs> Nobody even knows you here. That's just funny. Shannon, Hall of Fame member of NAU football team with us, everybody. There it is right there. <laughs> he hates I did that. It's the best. Um, so you would see kind of those guys, right? You'd have what, like the skaters, right? So they're all wearing their Etnies or their S's or Airwalks or their Vans or whatever. And they're, they're trying to do tricks, but they can't really because they're just not very good, right? Uh, but they were the first ones to do skinny jeans and we all thought it was silly. No one's ever going to do that. And then now even people like myself that shouldn't be wearing them do from time to time, right? And so that, that was kind of the skater group, right? You, you had like these different pockets of people. You're like, hey, you're, this is who you are because this is what you tend to wear at a school, right? And, and, and here's the idea, that, and the reason why I bring that up, if you haven't been with us, um, we're in the middle of kind of a seven-week series within a series, and so we're going through the book of Ephesians, but we're doing seven weeks on this idea of you put on Jesus and you put off the things that are not of Jesus. And the language that's used in the Bible is language of taking off clothing and putting on clothing. Like, that's the exact type of language. So it's saying, wear Jesus. When you get up in the morning and you're thinking about, what am I going to put on today? You're thinking, oh, I'm going to wear Jesus. Like, I'm going to wear the traits, the characteristics, the attitudes, the life of Christ is what I will wear and present to the world. And that's kind of this idea that when the, I could stand at my school and say, well, this is who that person is because this is what they're wearing. It's the exact same idea. Now, when I look at the church, when the world looks at the church, they're supposed to see Jesus, right? Which just lends itself to the question is, is that what they see, right? And we constantly, this isn't the first time I've brought that question to our minds and to our forefronts for us to be thinking through and to triage ourselves to say, when the world, when, when other churches, when we as a community look introspectively at ourselves, is what we see Christ. And this seven-week series is supposed to kind of help us. It's Paul talking to the church in Ephesus saying, hey, if you want to look like Jesus, we studied a couple weeks back that we're supposed to grow up into Jesus. The vision for our future maturity should be Jesus. Eric, when you grow up, what do you want to be? Jesus, right? Not an NBA basketball player. But Jesus, like when we get older, the goal is Jesus, okay? And so if we are trying to be conformed into his image, this is the, here's how, you, how it looks, right? This is the, hey, that's the end goal. Here's how we reverse engineer looking like Christ. We do these things that Paul encourages the church in Ephesus to do. So um, what we're going to get today is kind of the first of, uh, of six. And so today we're talking through truth and falsehood or falsity. And so we start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. It says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're going to break this down into three separate parts, A, B, and C. So 25A, therefore, having put away falsehood, we say this every time when you see a therefore, you have to ask why is the therefore therefore, right? What, what are we trying to build off of from last week? And so he is critiquing Paul just before this text, the Gentile culture. The unbelieving culture, right? Those who would say, uh, no, the God of the Bible is not for me, both in the culture of Ephesus then, and we even said, hey, it's pretty similar to our culture and our reality today in 2018 Flagstaff, 2018 Arizona, America, and 
the world. Okay, so building off of this juxtaposition of the past, building off of this idea of, hey, you know what? There's things about our culture, both on a micro and macro level, that don't seem to add up to the ethic and to the person and work of Jesus. So on a micro level, there's certain falsehoods that I think we can easily believe that will hinder us growing up into Jesus and us looking like and acting like and becoming the Christ that people will look to the church and see. And there's all sorts of ones we could go over, but I want to cover two main ones that I think are very important and kind of fit the context of what we're talking about today. The first one is this falsehood on a micro level, this personal level, that I'm amazing, okay? This kind of idea and thought and cultural reality that gets built up in our world today that you are just the bee's knees, right? That you're just the best thing since sliced bread. You're just the insert whatever idiom you could use right there, okay? That just says you're great and you're perfect as you are and you're awesome and you're the best and yada, yada, yada. And that's just not true. And I know it's not true because I meet with a lot of you. And some of your lives look great, but then you talk and you tell me about some of the inward turmoil that exists. And hear me. And then I tell you about some of the inward turmoil in me. And we both realize, eh, not that great. Okay? There's some good stuff. I'm not saying we're all this is evil people or not, but there's, it's not perfection. It's not this kind of cultural idol of you're just great as you are, stay as you are, you're the best, rah, rah, get a trophy no matter what you do type of thing. You're not that great. Now, on the other hand, I think the other kind of micro-level, cultural, idol thing that will inhibit us thing is that you're worthless. And some people buy into that falsehood and that lie just as easily. Because guess what? You're great and you're awesome because God fearfully and wonderfully made you. Because God formed you. Because God knew you. Because God redeemed you. Because God came to a world that was not his own home, left behind heaven, came into this earth, lived the life you could not live, died the death you and I deserve to die, raised on the third day, give us new life and empower us with the presence of his spirit because he wanted to be with us for all days. So you're awesome. God, like that's, so you're that loved and you're also that not great at the same time. And on a micro level, this is absolutely necessary for the people of God to live in the tension of, man, I'm not that great, but something God seems to do and care about me says something about my value. It says something about the fact that God made me in his image, unlike anything else in this world. I am made in the image of God. You are beautiful and valuable, but you're not that great. It's this tension between the two that I think is absolutely necessary because it is the gospel story. Right in that in-between, and there's a spectrum, right? That is where the gospel is found because you weren't great to the point where God didn't have to come to save you and you weren't great enough to earn your way there, right? But you weren't too far gone that the love of God could not reach you, right? The gospel is found in the in-between. And so when we move towards this elaborate, I'm the best thing ever, we live and swell up in pride, or if we do the opposite and live in worthlessness and denial of what God has done, man, we reject the gospel, okay? 
And that spectrum in the middle is wide, friends, right? So it's not just like one, two, three, right? The spectrum in the middle is wide, which means it's not like, hey, you just, I know some of you battle with some brokenness and depression and worthlessness. And so I'm not saying, hey, just cast that off. You're fine. Don't just, just believe truth and move on. No, no, no. I understand it's far more nuanced than that. But we have to be able to resolve and what Paul is calling us to here, he's saying, you got to put off, you got to take off the falsehood. Every morning, in the same way that you will take off the pajamas and put on whatever it is you guys wear from day to day, right? When you take off the pajamas, it's like, just think, I want you, like when you get up in the morning, I don't know what y'all wear to bed, but whatever you wear to bed, as you're taking it off to jump in the shower in the morning, whatever you do, I want you to think, okay, as the t-shirt's coming off, right, you're thinking, what I'm taking off is the lie and the falsehood of who I am on a micro level. Now, there's also a macro level reality to, I think, what Paul is talking about here. And it's all the juxtaposition and a contrast with what we just studied last week about the unbelieving culture and the lies that they try and sell everyone about what's important in life, about what type of things are the things that you should believe in, buy into, give your time to, etc., etc., etc. Now, um, there is a, uh, a story I know I've shared a couple times here, but I see a lot of new faces over the last year, and so I'm going to share it again. There's this professor at this seminary that a handful of us are actually getting ready to attend this fall named Michael Goheen, and he always talks about how when he wants his, or when his kids want to watch television, okay, he knows that obviously what, what they're going to watch, there's going to be some stories that are competing with the gospel story as you watch, and especially as they watch commercials, and so what he has them do when a commercial comes on that tries to sell them something, he has all the kids, as they're sitting on the couch, they stand up, they point at the television and say, you're not fooling us, right? Every time, like every time a commercial comes on, that if they want to watch television, that's what they have to do. And, and some of you are like thinking, this guy's going to screw up his kids, man, like, <laughs> like his poor kids. No, no, no. I think it's the other way around, because hopefully in that, they will learn and be indoctrinated, which is an okay thing, indoctrinated to know that, listen, the sales pitch from culture that says you need what you don't need is not truth, and it's not freedom. It's lie. It's deception. It's trying to buy you into a system and a story that is so contrary in many ways to the story of the Bible. It's, it's the same, like, I love the show Shark Tank. Anybody watch that show? It's like, that show, I'm like, yeah, no, I need that, Okay. Like, I need that. Like, there was this clip I was watching. It was of a guy, and they invented a light that goes in your toilet bowl at night. And it's in, like, a soft blue, right? And so the idea is if you got to wake up, use the restroom. I'm getting older. This is happening more often. And so, I'm, you know, I'm like, all right, I got to get in there. Like, heaven forbid I'd have to turn on the light. Thank God for my little blue light in my toilet bowl. Right? And so the episode airs. I'm like, yep, need that. Look online. Too expensive, didn't buy it. But still, I get bought into this stuff, right? And what gets sold to us is something that says, okay, you need this for life, and you don't. Now, let's listen for any of you who own toilet bowl lights, okay? That's not a judgment or critique on you, okay? If you're toilet bowl light people, that's great. You do you, okay? What I'm saying is we have to be able, there's an intentional um, imperative from Paul that says, or rather not even imperative, a presupposition that before he hits the imperative of speak truth to one another, okay? So before you speak truth, you have to what? Cast off, take off falsehood. And so it's not get rid of the light. It's saying you better open your eyes. 
And we better see, man, there's some false, deceptive realities that come your way that you have to say, nah, I'm not going to buy into that lie. I'm not going to buy into that story. I live in this, right? I live in the scriptures. This is the story that dictates and orchestrates and frames my life. Like, that's the, that's the idea. So the question becomes, well, how do we deal with culture then? How, as we're casting off falsehood, what does this look like? Now, there's this helpful uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what you call it, but kind of system or formula that I'm going to give you that was taught to me that I think is really helpful as we say, as culture is coming at us with things, as Paul's talking about, this is Paul addressing the Ephesian culture, now us trying to bring that to 2018 today, right? Um, how do we address then the unbelieving culture trying to sell us a different reality, a different story? And so I think it's helpful to do it in these three ways. One is you, at times, must reject what they sell. Like, you got to reject it. You got to say, you know what? Like, okay, I hear you. You're trying to package this thing to make it sound good. But no, like, that's, that's not for us. Like, that is so opposite and different from the faith in the community and the ethic of Christ. We reject that. Now, on the other hand, there are certain things that, that culture drums up and sends our direction that we receive. And we say, you know what? That's good. Like, that's got the common grace and the goodness of God that he's imprinted his image on people to be creative and to be people that help cultivate the land, right? So there's certain things that culture will drop, and we're like, yeah, we'll receive that. That's, that's fine. And then I think the majority of things the church is called to this last hour is to redeem those things. Certain things we reject, certain things we receive, and most of it we redeem through the lens of Jesus, we take things that maybe aren't necessarily bad, but maybe they're just a little bit off. They're outside of the ethic. They don't seem to line up with Jesus. And so we take those things and we, we say, you know, okay, you're going to do it that way. We're going to do it this way. Okay? We're, we're, we're going to do it in a way that like, brings glory to God, brings joy and flourishing to our communities. And so I think this is a helpful three-step system to try and think through, well, how do we approach culture then? If Paul's saying, that, you know, you reject falsehood, okay, well, what, is it, what does that look like? You put away, put away falsehood. It's not just reject everything. I think put it through this type of lens and paradigm is helpful for us. Okay, but that is the presupposition, church, that if we are to be a people who speak truth to one another, that we would have cast off falsehood. Okay, so that's step one. Let's look at B. So 25B says this. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Okay, so, so we've agreed upon, right, that we've, we're new, the gospel has changed us and saved us, right? We've put away the false story and brought on the good story of, of the gospel and of Jesus, and so now please speak truth with your neighbor. In a couple different ways, I think. The first one is don't lie, right? Like speak truth with one another, with your neighbor, as in don't lie. Don't be a deceptive person. Okay? And that comes in different forms. Like the most obvious is just an outright lie, right? Like if uh, this happens in different times at life where someone says something to you and then you go, no, I didn't do that, okay? Uh, did you leave the towels on the floor, sweetheart? No, that was, that was Finley, right? Um, and so yeah, Finley got to it, don't know, sorry. Uh, you know, it's, I don't actually do that. You guys are judging me right now. So no, but it's easy. We, this is outright lie. And that one's obvious, right? Don't do that. You guys know that, right? Don't lie, it's obvious. There's a couple other kind of subcategories that kind of fall under lying and deception that I think we think there's a gray area around that there's not, okay? And I call these exaggeration and minimizing, right? Like, 
this idea of making something more grandiose than it is or making something far smaller than it really is. And we do this all the time, like hyperbole. And listen, I love hyperbole. I use it all the time. I just used it when I said that, right? Like, I don't use it all the time, but I use it all the time. <laughs> so I, I love, like, this one. I think it's great, and it communicates so much passion and emotion. But man, it can be used as a dagger. It can be used to deceive subtly. And so we think to ourselves, no, I, I didn't lie. I, I maybe made it a little bit bigger, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe I sold the story a little better, right? Uh, a, a, big, a big part of this, a big exaggerative piece of this is, I mean, and we talk about this here pretty frequently, but it's just like every Facebook profile and Instagram profile we all have, right? That, like, I don't have any pictures of my kids crying on my Instagram, okay? That happens, okay? Like, my life looks like a dream, it's not meant to kind of exaggerate, but I'm saying, it, does it give a completely truth-filled and truthful version of what my day-to-day looks like? Probably not, okay? Now, not all of this is necessarily sinful, but here's the thing is, I, I don't think the church is called to be a people who just say, ah, well, we don't want to do that because it's bad, instead of having a better vision for what truth offers and brings to the other, that we pursue truth, Right? So, so it's not that, okay, if you have that Instagram account, right, and everything just looks peachy keen and it's all great, I'm not saying like you're living in sin. I'm saying, man, maybe there'd be a better vision for what that Instagram account could be used for that perpetuates a truth that actually brings life and flourishing to those instead of the competitive rat race, which is comparing your feed to someone else's, the keeping up with the Joneses type of mentality. What if it's not, I, I, just, I know we're not supposed to do this, but rather, no, we have a bigger vision, a better vision for truth. Jesus, and so we live in a certain way. Like, what, what if that is the thing that like, shaped the way we decided to live all of life in every aspect of what we do? Now, this often comes up. i got to take a sip. I'm getting, I'm getting warm. But this often comes up, unfortunately, and I'm going to go there, and, um, and I want you to be kind, but this often comes up politically. And a lot of times... When we see, uh, when, when I say we, we as a staff, we stalk all of you on Facebook, um, and we know everything you post, okay? And so, um, no, but you see these memes, right? You get these pictures with words on it that are meant to com- make a compelling point, and you get different people, and you guys post this stuff, and I post this stuff, and we peddle this stuff, and the reality is, man, it's like three seconds of fact-checking will tell you, that's just not even true, right? Like, like it's, it's, you see this thing, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened, and then you type in, hey, Google, did this happen? No. Oh. So here, here's what this tells me, is that there's someone, though, right? Hear me. There's someone who's out there, and if we find him, he's going he's gonna to pay. But um, there's someone that's out there that said to himself, I want to deceive people. When they create this stuff, right, that is just blatantly false, that we buy into as truth and we just pedal around because we don't have an extra five seconds to fact check it, okay? Uh, that's just foolishness. But, but hear me, so I think we're naive to think that this is this altruistic world that everyone's just trying to share news. It's like, no, 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 people are out there to deceive you. And we need to be a people that, listen, not just, ah, you know, I'm not just gonna reject, I wanna pursue something better. 
I want to be a person that holds tight and fast to truth. I want to be a beacon of truth, especially in the times that we exist today. Because the reality of our culture, listen, we have become a commentary culture and not a news culture. But hear me, Christianity is a news type of kingdom. It's not a commentary kingdom. It's a news kingdom, primarily. But we live in a culture that is based in commentary and not in news anymore. And so no wonder, oftentimes, Scripture is at odds with the ways of the world is because they're spitting commentary and we've got news and they don't add up and we should see that clearly and then walk in truth instead of just buying and peddling the junk that they're selling. I want to be very clear and say this little caveat real quick. I love our country. Like, I, I love America. Like, I, I think, I love it so much that I think she can be better, like, much better than she is. But don't hear this as, like, this anti, like, I hate the world and let's all just retreat like the Essenes did, right, in the intertestamental period when you had the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees raising up in power across the Jewish people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees said, hey, we're going to go claim power for ourselves by engaging with the culture. But then you had the Essenes said, no, 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 we're not going to have any of it, so let's go live in the mountains of Qumran, okay? So this is not a culture so bad. Again, let's just ditch it. No, no, it's let's redeem this thing. Let's be about truth. Let's be, man, if the people of, if the people of God would be the beacon of truth in our community, what would begin to change? Because all this formation talk about becoming more like Christ on a micro level as individuals, on a macro level as the church, is to form us, why? That we would be a blessing to the communities we call home. The cities would rejoice because the church decided to make truth the central, central part of the ethic of our life instead of buying into the other jargon. Now, um, the reality of this, okay, this gets easier if you truly believe in the sovereignty of God, okay? And and here's what I mean by this. Um, The whole lying deception thing it goes away if you believe God is sovereign. I mean, like, really, like, delve into God is in control, God is the author, God is sovereign. Because if all that's true, listen, he's doing his work and he's better at it than you are, okay? And so why lie? If he's in control, if he's the sovereign God of the universe, he's not asking you to lie for him. If anything, he's asking, oh, that's right, he's asking you to die for him. To lay down your life, not not like, hey, let me lie so that I look better or they don't look as bad or Jesus looks. He doesn't need you to lie for him. He needs you to die for him, to lay down your life for the sake, to to say, no, it's not about me and my image. It's about him and his image. So so you don't don't need to live in it. If the sovereignty of God rules us and knows, no, he's got this. He's got this. You can let go. And just live faithful to what he's calling us to. Now, that's the first, the first vision, I think, of when he says to speak truth. is like, just don't lie. Don't be deceptive people. Let's be a people who chase truth for the sake of the gospel in our communities. And then secondly, I think speak truth in just what Paul did in the previous verses, 17 through 24, that we studied last week, which is sometimes you have to come at people in the household of faith with really hard truth and say, hey, man, like, that's not right. 
That, listen, the what you're doing now, like that doesn't line up with this. Like that is off from scripture. You need to speak truth in this. I just recently, uh, back in December, got diagnosed with sleep apnea, uh, which means um, I just like how I have like 50, it was like 53 sleep interruptions an hour. So I was getting like like 10 minutes of sleep an hour was kind of what they were telling me. And so wasn't sleeping very much. So with a CPAP machine, what they have to do is they force oxygen down your throat with using this mask, okay? And so I have this machine next to my bed now. I got it three weeks ago, like the day before we left for Guatemala. And so I have this machine now, and there's this hose. It sucks in air, pushes the oxygen through the hose into the mask, and then literally forces oxygen every time I breathe in down my lungs, Okay? And it is awkward and frustrating and annoying and is a punch in the face the first time you start using it. Right? You hit the button and all of a sudden you're just breathing like a normal human and then it was right? Like you're just, ah, you're just, it's just, it's a lot. And the whole night my mouth gets dry. It's all this stuff. But then I get to sleep. Right? And my body gets to restore itself and experience rejuvenation and true rest where the body can repair itself. Listen, this is the vision for speak truth that we need to have. That, yeah, like, okay, I'm going to forcefully kind of give you something, okay? I'm going to shove oxygen down, I'm going to shove truth down your throat, okay? In the nicest, most gentle way possible, okay? But it will be for your benefit. It, It will be so that you can experience restoration, and repair, and rejuvenation, and rest. And, and so hear me, church, we, we are called to speak truth with our neighbor. And we're going to talk just about, in just a moment, who is our neighbor then. But we are called to speak truth, to be honest, to call people and say, no, that's not, that's not life, what you're living. So we call them to more. Why? Because, man, there's just a better way of doing this that brings life and rest and rejuvenation. Now, um, last thing I'll say on that is some of you, and, and this is not, I don't know, like just, I know this is a thing for us. I know it's been, unfortunately, at times and times, especially when I first got saved in times of pride and, and, and zealous living, sometimes this verse gets used as a weapon. So you feel like you can say whatever you want to anyone at any time in any context. Why? Because the Bible says... Speak truth. Speak truth. Speak, tell people. Call them out. Let them know. And you think, oh, I'm this great Christian. No, you're just kind of a jerk. Okay? Because even if we rewind this passage a little bit, if we just go back to the earlier parts of 4, right, in verse, uh, where is it? I think it's verse 15. Yeah, the context for that truth we already see in verse 15 is love. Speak truth what? In Love, that love is the conduit, it is the packaging, it is the carrying and mobile device for how you deliver truth. It must be bound up in love. It has to be bound up in a desire and a sake for the other to truly what? Experience life and experience restoration and rest. Driven by love, okay? So if that's your, your shtick, Stop. Stop doing that. Rethink the way you're approaching and approach like Jesus. Now, who's our neighbor, right? Who's our neighbor? Now, a lot of you guys kind of probably already know where this is headed. 
Um, your neighbor obviously is not just the, you know, that's this thing. It's not just like the four people that live across from you on both sides, right? The Van Horns just moved down the street. It's not that I just have to speak truth to them. Okay, this, is, this is broader. Now, we get the best definition of neighbor in Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. So um, you can see it on the screen if you don't feel like turning. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you might or may not be familiar with, but he says this. Behold, a lawyer stood up in front of him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, notice, to justify himself. So this is not, Oh, who is my neighbor? Lord, I really want to know who you want me to love. This is, what is the minimal amount I have to do to be able to go to heaven, right? Well, who's my neighbor? Like, how, how do I, how can I just kind of do whatever the easiest piece of this is, right? And Jesus' response, <laughs> Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, if you don't know Samaritan, we're talking like the least liked people in the entire empire, right? Like nobody liked people from Samaria. The Samaritan was an ostracized outsider that was despised among culture, okay? So, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now Jesus' question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the guy said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. Now notice this story. This man asks, hey, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus turns the story around and says, no, no, don't think, think, how do you become neighborly? What does it mean for you to be the neighbor? Not, stop trying to define in, what is the least I can do? It's saying, no, the calling is greater. It's how do you act as the true neighbor, the one who shows mercy, that sees and then has compassion and then engages. How do you become the one who is neighborly? And so this context shows us, right, that the, 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 the scope, right, of our truth-telling is to all people. Because as Christians, we are called to be the best neighbors. We're called to be those who engage with all people. Surely if the Samaritan would do it, so would the faithful Jew, right? So would the faithful Christian in America today. So we speak truth to all people. The context and the scope for our radical pursuit of truth, not just, hey, we're not going to lie, but a calling to the culture and to all people to say, Jesus is better. Hear this story which sets you free instead of enslaving you to something that you bought into even though it was something you never needed. Okay, that, that's, that's what he's talking about. That's the context. Now, Jesus was the king of this, wasn't he? Like he was just the king of this. I'm going to give it to you right now. One of the application points, one of the things I want you guys to do this week is to just go home, 
Open up the Gospels, I don't care which one you pick. Find three stories of Jesus talking to people and just read them over and over and over and look at Jesus. Just study Jesus in the way he interacts, the way he loves, the way he sees, the compassion he has, how he responds, how he talks, what his body language might be, and just put yourself in that place and dream about, man, if Jesus lived like this, I'm called to the same. What does truth-telling look like for me? Okay. So, so this, Jesus was just the king of this. But listen, not just in that, Everything he said was truthful. We, we know that, right? Never a sin in his mouth, never deception to come from him. He was perfect. Uh, we, we also know that he oftentimes did say hard truths to convict people and to call people from comfort and into truth and into the kingdom, right? to pull them from darkness into light, the whole deal. But on a macro level, the entire life of Jesus, even verse 21 in chapter 4, if you just want to look back in Scripture, it says whether well, the truth is what? In him. That the entire embodiment of truth is Jesus. <coughs> and so if we are to, as we say here often, if we are to have a fighting chance of pursuing truth ourselves, it has to start with us in reckless abandoning, pouring, and, and, and chasing and loving Christ, who is the embodiment of truth. His entire life speaks of truth. He was the arrival of truth. When he died and rose again, truth resurrected and truth raised. And truth came back in the form of his spirit to me and dwelt in us that we would be a people of truth. And when the world looks and they look at the church and they say, man, that's just, that's Jesus. That, and, and they just, lit, like, what they're saying is accurate and true and they don't buy into all this jargon and falsity and the rap. No, no, no. They just are a people of truth in every best way. Okay, now, um, this last part, C, so A, B, C. Um, I know you all thought one verse and we were going to go short today, but that's not how we roll here. Um, the last part, for is the first word, for or because, okay? C, let me reread the whole thing to you, just put it in context, okay? Um, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for or because we are members of one another, okay? We are all linked. We are members of one another, united, okay, to one another, now, now listen, we are united to all of humanity in that our actions have repercussions for all the people around us. That when you do something here, the ripple effect of your action, right, is going to impact someone you'll never meet. That's just the way it is. Uh, the best illustration for this, I was actually watching this clip three weeks ago, and I immediately thought, that's going in the sermon. And so I often use movie clips here. Uh, I don't show them, because uh, I think we have to get rights for that. That seems like a lot of work. And so instead, uh, I'm just going to read it to you. And it's from the movie Goodwill Hunting. Now, has everyone seen that? And if not, you could go now and go watch it, because it's great, Okay. Um, phenomenal film. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, they wrote it. It was like kind of their like, coming out thing and whatever. And so um, in this scene, Will Hunting, who's Matt Damon's character, is being interviewed by the NSA for a job, okay? Uh, and uh, he he's like, turns out to be this brilliant kid that was born in South Boston, um, and he just like 
had no expectation, people had no expectations on his life, and then he ends up being this brilliant kid, and he gets this interview with the NSA. And so he's interviewing with the NSA, and the NSA says, well, tell me, like, what's a good reason not to work here, right? And then this is his response, and this is where I went. And I'm going to say this right in the beginning. This movie was made like 20 years ago. Please hear nothing political in this, okay? It's like got political stuff in it. It has nothing to do with now. So I don't want an email about it. This is a 20-year-old movie, okay? I'm serious, okay? Here we go. And I'm going to do it in a somewhat Boston accent because you can't not, okay? <laughs> Maybe I won't. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> he says this. He says, say I'm working at the NSA. Somebody puts a code on my desk. Somebody no nobody else can break. Maybe I take a shot at it and maybe I break it. And I'm real happy with myself because I did my job well. But maybe that code was the location of some rebel army in North Africa or the Middle East. Once they have that location, they bomb the village where the rebels were hiding, and 1,500 people that I never met, never had no problem with, get killed. Now the politicians are saying, send in the Marines to secure the area because they don't care. It, would be the, it wouldn't be their kid over there getting shot, just like it wasn't them when their number was called because they were pulling a tour in the National Guard. It'll be some kid from Southie taking shrapnel in the butt, and he comes home to find the plant that he used to work at got exported to the country he just came back from. And the guy who put the shrapnel in him got his old job because he'll work for 15 cents a day and no bathroom breaks. Meanwhile, he realizes the only reason he was over there in the first place is so we could install a government that would sell us oil at a good price. And of course, the oil companies use the skirmish over there to scare up domestic oil prices. And cute ancillary benefit for them, but it ain't helping my buddy at 250 a gallon, which we wish, right? They're taking their sweet time bringing the oil back and maybe even took the liberty of hiring an alcoholic skipper who likes to drink martinis and play slalom with the icebergs. And it ain't too long till he hits one, spills the oil, kills all the sea life in the North Atlantic. So now my buddy's out of work. He can't afford to drive, so he's walking to the job interviews. And meanwhile, he's starving because every time he tries to get a bite to eat, the only blue plate special they're serving is North Atlantic Scrawd with Quaker State. So what did I think? I'm holding out for something better. I figure, forget that. While I'm at it, why not just shoot my buddy, take his job, give it to a sworn enemy, hike up gas prices, bomb a village, club a baby seal, hit the hash pipe, and join the National Guard. I could be elected president. Okay, so that's what he says. So, now, what is the point in sharing that movie quote, which I love, and it's just so good, and maybe that's why I used it. But really, I, I think the entire point of what he's saying is like, look, I'm going to do this thing at my desk in Washington, D.C., and the ripple effect of that decision will impact hundreds and thousands of people I don't know and will never meet. That the reality of humanity and of life is you are, in even more now than ever, are so absolutely interconnected with people all over the globe that whatever decisions you, hear me, whatever decisions we as the church at Redemption Flagstaff make, it will impact people in ripples beyond what we can ever imagine. Now, I say that because, listen, we have to be able to carry that type of weight and that type of responsibility in a healthy way to say, gosh, well, we better than be somewhat cautious of how we walk and how we live, about what we say, about how we live our lives, about how even when we preach truth, we preach it in such a way that is good and truthful and loving because the implications of life impact way beyond your immediate Oikos or circle of influence. So I think that's how we're connected to all. But there is a special connection in the household of faith. And Paul talks about this in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. He says this, 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Excuse me. And we are all made to drink of the spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. Skipping down to verse 25. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, what the Bible says is that you and I and those in the room, and I don't even want to assume all of you guys are Christians. In fact, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we just want to say welcome and thank you for being here to learn and to engage or whatever reason you got dragged here. Thanks for joining us. You're loved here. You're welcome here. Spend time. Get to know us, et cetera, et cetera. But for those of us in the household of faith who say, Jesus, yes, you are my Savior, you and I, listen, we are members of one another. And what I do affects you. And what you do affects the person you came with and the person at the end of the row you haven't met. Because we are one new organism, one new body grafted in to this amazing supernatural thing that God has built, a new otherworldly family, otherworldly kingdom, where now we are members of one another. Last quote I want to share is from this guy Chrysostom. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, of the Eastern Orthodox Church towards the beginning of the 5th century. Uh, and brilliant, I mean, did tons of like social and spiritual reforms over the Eastern Orthodox Church, pulling people back to Christ. And he says this, okay? He says, if the, if the eye were to spy a serpent or a wild beast, will it lie to the foot? Will it not at once inform it? And the foot thus informed by it refrain from moving on. And what again, when neither the foot nor the eye shall know how to distinguish, but all should depend upon the smelling. As for example, whether a drug be deadly or not, will the smelling lie to the mouth? And why not? Because it will be destroying itself also. You see, as we, we are, for better or worse, like intrinsically, supernaturally linked with one another, if you're here and you are his. Like, we're one thing. That is a heavy burden, right? But a beautiful one. This is why moments like when a Dane, right, or Jono and Katie three weeks ago, or, you know, the 77 people that have left us over the last six years, when we have them up and we pray and we get choked up, and we get tearful. It's not, I'm not, listen, I, yes, I'm going to miss Dane. I'm going to miss like laughing with him. I'm going to miss going to get water with him. I'm going to miss just enjoying our time watching soccer, right? Like I'm going to enjoy all those things. I'm going to miss all those things and reflect and enjoy those things about him. But there is this feeling of loss to myself that he's leaving. Now, <laughs> because he's part of me, we don't allow ourselves in the church to make this happen enough and get that close to one another where we see, man, I belong to you and you to me, and that is the church. And it's the only fighting chance that we have to live out this crazy ethic of Jesus. If we let each other just like get into that type of life with one another, 
pains us when someone goes. Not because we'll miss the soccer game, because we'll feel the sense of loss in self. And this is what Paul's calling the church to. And truth is a key part of it. He's going to run through five more things, and he started with truth. And I think that was intentional. We'll find later in Ephesians 6 what, that truth is the belt that binds all things together. It holds together the armor of God, and it holds together the community, the truth. Again, verse 21, which is Jesus. So we swear allegiance to him as our king, as the chief, as the one we follow. Do it together. Because it's the only chance we got. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the dad that brought this family together. And I thank you that we have not just the family in this room, but Lord, we got this really big extended family all across the globe. And they are part of us. We're part of them. And Lord, you are calling and teaching and shaping this church globally to reflect you. Lord, I will be honest that at times, Lord, it, it's overwhelming and I am, feel woefully incapable. Lord, in those moments for myself, for the church, across our world, God, will we just press into you? Be ever dependent on Jesus. That we'd look like you, we'd live like you, God, we'd experience the joy and the justification that we have and the identity that we have in you. God, that we'd be a faithful presence, God, all across the world. We pray for our town. We pray for the city of Flagstaff. If there's visitors in the room, wherever they call home, God, we pray for their communities and their neighborhoods. God, that the people that would come into contact with them and the people that come into contact with those who came in contact and so, forth, so on and so forth will be blessed by the work that you are doing in the hearts of all in this room right now. As you conform us to the image of Jesus, as we grow up into you, and as you form your church to be your faithful witness and presence, whoever we call home. Lord, bless us as we respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.